Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly with you, joined by Antoinette Latouf. And Antoinette, over the next three days, you're doing something a little bit different with The Briefing. You're going deep on one topic over mm-hmm. three days, gut health. So what piqued your interest about gut health? Well, Tom, we're often told to listen to our guts or we do it intuitively. Like that's why we have that expression, gut instinct. We get butterflies when we're nervous. Um, Sometimes if you're anxious, you feel it in your gut. And that's just a small window into how much it actually impacts the whole of our body and our well-being and a whole host of medical conditions. And there's actually loads of research being done in this area, examining just how much our gut is our second brain. There have been lots of studies, for example, on the role of this gut microbiota in, in dementia, in autism, in Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, so a variety of different kind of brain conditions as well as, you know, mental health conditions. I'll be looking at the impact of gut health on mental health and whether we should be responding or treating Mm. mental health differently. Also, the huge market that's sprung around it, Mm. like kombucha and probiotics. Does it work or is it just bougie bullshit? Mm. And today, the anatomy of gut health. All right, look forward to that after the headlines. First, here they are. It is Wednesday, the 2nd of November. The Reserve Bank says there will be more interest rate pain to come after lifting the cash rate by another 25 basis points yesterday. So that's the seventh rise in a row, taking the cash rate to 2.85%. That's the highest level in nine years. Yeah, so the RBA Governor, Philip Lowe, uh, gave a speech yesterday and explained what would happen if they didn't take this course. If this were to happen... The evil of inflation would be with us for longer and the eventual increase in interest rates needed to bring inflation down would be even larger. So the other really interesting thing the RBA said was that the peak of inflation will be slightly worse than expected. It was expected to peak at the end of the year by 7.75%. Now they're saying it'll get to 8% before falling back eventually um, in 2024 back to around 3%. So if you have a mortgage, it means for a $750,000 loan on a 25-year mortgage, repayments will go up by about $112 a month. Add that to the rest of the rate rises since May, and it's more than $1,100 extra a month. Ouch. So property prices are falling Mm. at a record pace. Um, It's at its worst in Sydney, which is already down 10%. Consecutive interest rate rises sound like bad news. And in many ways it is, but I I guess a little bit of context um, is that they are still at historically pretty low levels. Um, And the other thing we often talk about when we're talking about interest rates is mortgages. But just over a third of households have a mortgage, just under a third own their property outright, and about the same amount are actually renters. So this isn't something that impacts all households. And I don't know, I just think it's something that we sometimes forget to discuss. Yeah, well, people saving, it's good because their saving deposit interest rates go up. Mm. And and the big issue really is how wages have stagnated for years. That impacts everybody and they're not expected to rise in real terms until later in 2024 um, because that impacts, of course, renters and mortgage holders. And there are dozens of flood warnings still in place for parts of New South Wales and Victoria. Cannot believe this is still happening for people in these towns. So the New South Wales town of Forbes 
is preparing for another major flood. The Lachlan River there is expected to reach levels not seen in more than 70 years, um, rising to 10.8 metres from Friday. Meanwhile, in the southeast, we've been shivering through a near record cold snap to start November. Like I, Tom, I object to having to wear a jumper in November. I just think it's wrong on all levels. But Antarctic winds have been bringing temperatures down by as much as 15 degrees below average. And parts of the Great Dividing Range are forecast to have snow, as well as central New South Wales. And the last time it snowed in November that far north was 2008. Yeah, apparently it's going to snow down to about eight or 900 metres altitude, which is really low um, mm. in Australia. And this follows the wettest October on record for New South Wales and Victoria. Mm. Nine arrests have been made in West India after a bridge collapsed, killing more than 140 people, including dozens of children. So those arrested include employees of a company responsible for maintaining and operating the bridge. Had the bridge not been overloaded, then this tragedy would not have happened. So that's a survivor speaking there. So this suspension bridge was packed with people celebrating Diwali and a group of young boys started swinging on the bridge Mm. from side to side. And that's when it broke, plunging hundreds of people 10 metres down into a river. And look, I don't recommend necessarily everybody watch the vision because it is pretty confronting and sad watching it all unfold. But too many people were packed on the bridge, it's clear. But they weren't elevated that high. And what seems to have happened is that many people couldn't swim and they drowned in the water rather than died from the impact because you can actually see people struggling to tread water and some are still hanging onto the bridge's edges. It's just an absolutely avoidable tragedy. And Grammy-nominated rapper Takeoff has been shot dead at a Houston bowling alley. Um, So this guy was the youngest member of a group called um, Migos from Atlanta. He was 28. Crazy story. Gold Trip is going to win the Lexus Melbourne Cup. And Gold Trip won the Melbourne Cup, the coldest since 1913. It's still crying. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. What a day. Yeah, so that's jockey Mark Zara on Channel 10. Funny story about him. Last year, he was at a naughty um, COVID mm-hmm. party during lockdown on the Mornington Peninsula with his jockey mates, um, so he wasn't allowed to race. Apparently, he was in big trouble with his wife at the time. So he was out of purgatory this year, and all the punters were as well back at the racetrack. Oh, well, he has um, more reason to party. <laughs> Much better party <laughs> this year without the guilt trip. Thanks, Tom. We'll catch you tomorrow. Uh, next up, gut health. Do we need to be paying more attention to our second brain? So you may have noticed that a lot more people have mental health issues. There are heaps of people with allergies now and oh let's let's not forget all the autoimmune diseases. And if you're like me, perhaps you've asked whether it's all because of more awareness, leading to better diagnosis, which is obviously not a bad thing. If anything, it's a good thing. Or maybe it's also because our lifestyles and diets are also contributing to it. Over the next three days, I'm going with my gut on this and I'm taking a closer look at what is increasingly referred to as our second brain. And that's the gut. And there's a fast-growing body of research linking it to all sorts of diseases and illnesses. So what do we know so far? To help me out, Emad Alma is the director of the University of New South Wales' Microbiome Research Centre. He's also a professor of medicine there. 
Hi, Emad. Thanks so much for joining us. So let's start with Anatomy 101. What's in the gut? Because it's it's more than just the stomach. So the gut is essentially your gastrointestinal tract. It's certainly more than your stomach. And it's certainly more than just a long tube, you know, that goes from the top end to the tail end. Uh, it's a very sophisticated organ that is, apart from doing the digestion, absorption of all the nutrients and so forth, it's also the largest nervous system outside of the brain, the largest endocrine system, and the largest immune system. It has so much diversity and variety, and this is why it impacts on human health across all disciplines. It has a number of accessory organs, for example, your liver, gallbladder, pancreas, and so forth. And together, they really regulate all aspects of your nutrition and digestion. But the kind of mm-hmm. the new organ that it lies within this gut is the so-called microbiome, the kind of the trillions of microorganisms that live in the gut. And these are, have emerged as a, another almost like a separate organ that has its own functions as well. You're a microbiome expert, which I imagine when you tell people that at a dinner party, they may look at you like micro what? Um, <laughs> explain what this microbiome community of microorganisms does and includes. Yeah, so, so this is the, the, the trillions, literally trillions of microorganisms. These could be bacteria, viruses, fungi, archaea, you know, all sorts of microorganisms that live in and on us. The bulk of them obviously lie in the gastrointestinal tract, particularly the large bowel or the colon. And they're not just inert kind of uh, uh, inhabitants. They are active little small factories that metabolize and digest and ferment all the nutrients that we send down, all the fiber, all the indigestible material. And in the process, they produce a lot of metabolites. Metabolites are chemicals that obviously can interact with the host by acting on receptors and are involved in so many pathways. They produce metabolites that could act as neurotransmitters, hence why they're relevant to brain function. They also produce uh, metabolites that are relevant to our immune system. Most often they act to help us and to actually look after our health by allowing us to tolerate things that are useful for us. Obviously also fight off uh, invaders or pathogens that happen to enter our gastrointestinal tract. So with all of these functions, this microbiome has emerged as a kind of a a new cross-linking platform that allows the body to coordinate all its functions. And you mentioned the brain, and I do want to talk about how in recent years we're hearing more and more about the gut as the second brain. Why is it that it's, it's only been in recent years that we've been doing a lot of research in this area and having these sorts of conversations Yes, it's quite curious why it's taken so long to figure out the mechanisms for this, although we've always suspected that you do have a second brain in your gut. And most people would be familiar with how you feel if your gut is not right, if you're constipated, if you've got diarrhea, you feel miserable, and it affects your cognition and mood and so forth. And equally, if you have obviously some nervous problems, it also impacts on your gut. If you're anxious, if you sit in your exams, you know, you'll have the intestinal hurry, the anxiety, the, the, you know, the abdominal pain and so forth. The two are so interlinked, but it's only been in the last uh, kind of 20, 30 years that we've started to understand the, the links and the mechanisms between the, the gut and the brain. Is it perhaps because for so long researchers, scientists and doctors have been 
concentrating on you know infectious disease and other things like that. And in many ways, and correct me if I'm wrong, some of these gut health lifestyle-induced issues can kind of be, for want of a better expression, first world problems? Yes, you're absolutely right. So, you know, if you have so many other disasters to, you know, care about it, kind of your gut health and cognition kind of takes uh, second place. But, uh, you know, most of that connection between the gut and the brain, it's actually a a physiological association. It has, uh, you know, mechanisms and has pathways. Understanding these has been very difficult, but with advancing technology and, and particularly the ability to dissect out not necessarily infectious diseases, but certainly microorganisms that kind of live and cohabit with us, that has allowed us to kind of uh, provide evidence base and, you know, scientific background to all of the, you know, hypotheses that were done in the past. So this crosstalk and communication between the brain and digestive system, as you've mentioned, is opening new ways to think about diseases. I'm curious to know which particular diseases we've made sort of the most progress on. There have been lots of studies, for example, on the role of this gut microbiota in, in dementia, in autism, in Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, so a variety of different kind of brain conditions as well as you know, mental health conditions that have been the subject of intense research over the last maybe five years or so. And I think this is kind of for the first time opening another frontier to try and deal with these kind of chronic illnesses that hitherto have had only medications that kind of suppress the condition or treat it, you know, the acute exacerbations. This is why I think this is so exciting and I think it offers a lot of hope for people. And one idea in particular has intrigued researchers and, you know, lots of families around the world. Um, This is about the certain mixtures of gut microbes that may help cause autism because it is well known that children with autism often suffer gastro sorts of problems. What do we know exactly? You're absolutely right. So the studies that have been done so far suggest that there's a profound imbalance in the in, in the kind of the microbiome of children with autism. Uh, now, this, of course, you know, we have to be careful here to distinguish between uh, causative effects and effects that are, you know, manifest because of the altered diet and eating habits and so forth. Regardless, I think if you take this to a deeper level and look at the kind of the scientific evidence and mechanistic studies, there is no doubt that the, the composition and the function of the gut microbiome would impact on uh, the risk of autism and its mechanisms. There are a number of studies now trying to alter the composition of the gut microbiome to see if it helps in the management of autism disorders. And, and in terms of where mainstream medicine's thinking is, and I know a lot of this research is promising but still underway, do you think, you know, when you go to your regular GP and present with a bunch of issues, that they're considering gut health front and centre rather than, you know, pharmaceutical responses to symptoms? Yes, unfortunately not. I mean, I think, you know, the gut health concept, although it's actually very well established, uh, you know, amongst the lay public and most people appreciate it. And, and as I mentioned, you know, modern science is starting to show why it's so relevant, translating this into clinical practice will always take time. And I think this is where we have to, you know, give it the time and the space and the, and the support and the funding to allow us to provide the evidence base that will shift the medical fraternity. We're always very conservative as physicians, you know, we don't, we don't jump on bandwagons. And I think it's, it's, but once you provide the evidence base, I'm sure there'll be a paradigm shift and we'll start to take, you know, gut health much more seriously in management of conditions that are not related to the gut. This is, I think, this is going to be the new frontier. We're all trying hard to get the best out of this new revolution, 
but fundamentally, uh, and, and this is very, very uh, fortunate, is, is that we can influence the gut microbiome, the gut health by lifestyle. So, so this is something that we've known for centuries, is that if you eat well and you, you, know, you, you exercise, you do physical activity, you avoid all the toxins and so forth, this actually fixes your gut health. It does give you a very healthy microbiome, a very balanced one, a diverse one. And this will see you through. This will actually help you know, with all of your kind of risks for most diseases that we know. The beauty of this uh, new revolution is that we can manipulate it. We can preemptively change it for the better. And doing that ideally through lifestyle changes is actually the way forward. Emad El Omar is the director of University of New South Wales Microbiome Research Centre. He's also a professor of medicine there. And that was part one of our gut instinct series. A very basic takeaway is look after what you put in your mouth, look after your exercise and your health. There's so much you can do to impact your gut health. But often people want shortcuts. They don't want to make those lifestyle changes. So tomorrow I'll be taking a deep dive, a deep intestinal dive into the huge, very profitable industry of things like probiotics and kombucha, which promise shortcuts to fixing your gut health. Is it just bougie bullshit or does it work? Listener.